You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. Welcome back to season four of this podcast. I'm recording today in Concordia University on the unceded Indigenous lands of the Kanyakahaga Nation. As you may already now know, our episodes are being released on the 1st and the 15th of every month. So that's a slight change in the schedule. Also, we have a website up and running available at www www.gettinglitwithlinda.com. Otherwise, welcome back. I'm going to start today's episode with a story, as I usually do, and then launch into the book under discussion, Monkey Beach. Many people assume that because I teach Canadian and Indigenous literatures, that that is where I started my literary journey. But that really couldn't be further from the truth. I started in English literature, yes, but it was predominantly British literature in my undergraduate studies, with only one course devoted to the burgeoning field of Canadian literature. By the time I reached graduate school, I still focused on British literature, Victorian literature to be exact, with a thesis that emphasized Charlotte Bronte's novels. But as I began the PhD, I decided it was high time I begin to focus on Canadian literature, a field that I thought was grossly underrated and attracted insufficient attention. So I enrolled in a combined Canadian literature and Canadian studies program, and I went full steam ahead. But it wasn't even during the PhD that I had any kind of understanding about Indigenous literatures. That would come some years later, when I moved to Vancouver and started a postdoctorate in the Women and Gender Studies Department at the University of British Columbia. While I was there, the direction of my life would change with a conversation. Yes, it was one very important conversation and a story that changed the direction of my research and teaching that would inspire me to change and act in later years, so much so that I, as a settler scholar, would not only advocate for, but also eventually develop and teach a course on Indigenous literatures and pedagogies at my own university. Well, in the fall of my first year of studying at the University of British Columbia, a Kanyakahaga man named, we'll say B, would enlighten me about what it actually meant to be Indigenous in this country. What it meant for him personally and what the implications have been for his life and his community. As he shared his story, it began to reveal and undo some of my previous assumptions. In fact, his story was so effective, it altered the trajectory of my research. Stories, as many of us know, and as I directly experienced, are effective, especially as catalysts for transformation. When I asked him how I should begin to change, he replied that just listening to him and having that discussion with him that day was a good place to start. And he was right. Something in me woke up 
became conscious and alert and then began to grow after I had that conversation with B. It was the result of that first conversation that I also went on to grow and learn and integrate Indigenous literatures into my classes. Still, I realized that having gone through a doctoral program that had not yet recognized Indigenous literatures as a distinct field, I mean, there was no such thing at the time, sidebar, I didn't even imagine it as a possibility then, I was unequipped with the critical tools to approach, read, study, write about, and teach Indigenous literatures. The real challenges then became first not only how to teach these literatures, but also, second, how to create an appropriate environment for my students to navigate, learn, grow from, and flourish in their studies, and engage in the kind of inspiring conversation that I had had with B. It was shortly after this conversation, too, that I went on to read a novel that would have as a significant an impact. The book that made the difference was Monkey Beach, which was awarded the 2001 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize and shortlisted for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and the Governor General's Award for English Language Fiction. The author of this book, Eden Robinson, is an incredible writer. Even Thomas King has said about her that she is, quote, one of those rare artists who comes to writing with a skill and maturity that has taken the rest of us decades to achieve, end quote. Part Heisla and part Heltzik, she was raised near the Heisla nation of Kitimat and holds an MFA in creative writing from UBC. Her first book was actually a collection of short stories, not the novel. The short stories were called Trap Lines, published in 1996. Now listen, I have to add that it's very unusual for a writer to publish a short story collection first, but it was recognized by the Winifred Holtby Memorial Prize, the PRISM International Prize for Short Fiction, and was selected as a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. She then won the Journey Prize and was quickly pursued by various publishers who all wanted the rights to distribute her next work. And her next book would, in fact, be Monkey Beach. A couple of things to note here. First, Monkey Beach really was, at the time, a radical departure from the kinds of expectations people had about Indigenous literatures, about what and how Indigenous writers should write. As such, it was seen as the first Indigenous novel to embrace a more contemporary form and feel, and certainly did not adopt the form of a memoir, which is a little more typical of the time. She showed that Indigenous authors could write in other ways, Robinson is, in short, effective at demonstrating how Indigenous stories have been burdened with an ideology of authenticity that is expected to perform to the outsider's view of what constitutes Indigenous authenticity. This is a deeply troubling expectation when there's a colonial history that has also had a profound impact on, in this instance, the Heisler community. Other people identified Monkey Beach as a form of contemporary Gothic, but then that view was challenged because the idea of the Gothic really doesn't apply to Indigenous literatures. The interpretive framework just wasn't quite right. It's true, though, that the way that Robinson infuses Heisler context with contemporary references and images, icons like Elvis and material culture, was actually quite remarkable at that time. 
And so we are aware of how much Robinson likes to challenge boundaries at last year's Blue Met Literary Festival in 2022 in Montreal, Quebec, at which time she was being awarded the Blue Metropolis First Peoples Literary Prize in a partnership with the Indigenous Voices Awards. She was asked about her next novel, and she spoke of it as being some version of a reservation Harlequin romance, which she said is a trashy res novel. She had everyone in the audience in stitches, especially with that infectious laugh of hers. But she insisted she wanted to write something her own mother would read. And she could probably do it too. Since Monkey Beats, she's gone on to write the coming-of-age novel Son of a Trickster, in which the main character is in fact the cousin of the protagonist of Monkey Beach, Lisa Marie. Published in 2017, Son of a Trickster was shortlisted for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and followed by The Trickster Drift, which won the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize and The Return of the Trickster in 2021. Well, to return to her short story collection, Traplines, there is one story, titled Queen of the North, which actually sets the stage for what then happens in the novel that follows in Monkey Beach. Now, I won't say more about what that is, except to say that one of the main characters, Jimmy Hill, may have reason for feeling deep anger and for seeking revenge, but he's also motivated by a form of heroism that's damaging. That is, that violence, even as the result of deep moral conviction, only breeds further violence and is ultimately self-destructive. But when Monkey Beach opens, it begins with his disappearance, or more specifically, the disappearance of a fishing boat on which he was traveling with another character with whom he was involved in this altercation. The account is told by his sister, Lisa Marie, who's back in Kitimat Village, a Heisler reservation just south of the city. So Lisa Marie is the primary narrator, but not the only one, and it would be a mistake to assume that the novel is entirely told from her perspective. In fact, there is another narrative voice that supersedes hers and introduces sections in the book, a voice that seems to be in possession of knowledge that Lisa Marie does not have. I'll say more of that in a moment. As the search for her brother unfolds moving forward in time, she returns back in time to memories of her childhood and adolescence in order to cope with the disappearance of her brother. So there are multiple plot lines and flashbacks to explain how we arrived at this present moment, a moment when we must figure out whether Jimmy is still alive. Is he? Is he still alive? If so, where is he? Lisa Marie is in an agony of torment. And although there is a search and rescue effort being made, she at last decides to conduct a search of her own through the Douglas Channel and toward, yes, Monkey Beach. Now that beach is famous for its Sasquatch sightings, that is the Bugwus, actually improperly known as the Bugwus, a preoccupation of her brother's when he was younger, as she recalls, but that also highlights the differences between these siblings, because Jimmy, as a child, wanted to photograph the Bugwus. And why? So he could make money from such a sighting. Specifically, there was a $30,000 reward offered by the tabloid World Weekly Globe. Lisa Marie, however, is spiritually gifted, able both to see and interact with spiritual beings, including the Bugwus, among other figures. But she struggles to understand what to do with this gift. 
The fact that she doesn't understand her spiritual abilities is a register of a colonial inheritance. What I mean by this is that her grandparents and her parents were deeply, traumatically impacted by a residential school system that discounted her family from their spiritual and cultural roots. Even these legacies, however, are not known by Lisa Marie, who only learns later that her Aunt Trudy does not speak to her grandmother because she sent Aunt Trudy and her brother Mick to the residential schools. When she does learn, there are these kinds of evocative spaces, voluble silences, as it were, that appear in the text, which provide the readers with a tactful way to consider the ironies of which we may, or the characters may, be unaware. So Lisa Marie's own mother has also inherited spiritual gifts, but refuses even to acknowledge them or invoke them, because she too has been affected by the legacy of the residential school. Lisa Marie does have her maternal grandmother for a while, who tries to teach her the Heisla language and some of the traditions from which Lisa Marie has otherwise been disconnected. She tries to help her understand her gifts. When she sees Lisa Marie smoking, for example, she remarks that, quote, tobacco was sacred long time ago. The smoke, it lifted prayers to the gods. These days, it's nothing. It's like candy, hey? End quote. However, that central figure, her grandmother, has died by the time the novel opens and Lisa Marie's brother is missing. And her own surviving children, that is, her grandmother's surviving children, Lisa Marie's uncle Mick, for example, they are deeply resentful because she relinquished her children to the residential school system. That system and its legacy is a subtext that informs and creates all kinds of pressures on the events that are threatening to, and actually do at one point, spiral completely out of control. So Mick has also experienced the struggle Lisa Marie endures. That is, he has partial knowledge of Heisler traditions and spirituality, remembering in one instance that seeing the halibut with three crabs in his net is a sign. But is it a good sign or a bad one? He can't remember. Lisa Marie has even less knowledge, but she is spiritually gifted, even if she can't always decipher the meaning of the apparitions only she can see. She's trying to repress those gifts, at first being terrified by her visions and the spirits that she encounters, but they will be heard and understood. They're demanded of her, and eventually they guide her through the quagmire of her current circumstances. She can't really understand what has happened to Jimmy until she understands what has happened to her family and to herself. She is therefore a complex character whose limited but growing sense of understanding is augmented by the mature voice that encapsulates her point of view. And by the mature voice, I mean the narrative excerpts that open sections of the book and that are not clearly from Lisa Marie's point of view. Is it her later adult voice reflecting back on this moment? Or is it another voice? We're never explicitly told within the confines of the book, but it doesn't really matter. It makes for a much richer narrative that demonstrates how much is beyond not only Lisa Marie's grasp, but also our own. How there are knowledges and a spirituality that we don't necessarily have a handle on, 
nor should we, as non-members of this Heisla community. We are being invited into some understanding of this community, into a powerful conversation about it, while also being reminded of the kinds of violences that a prying or intrusive gaze may have. That it is our responsibility to engage respectfully in these kinds of conversations. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. I've been speaking about the novel Monkey Beach, but there is also a movie version about this book, and it's a pretty good one, too. Directed by Loretta Todd and starring Grace Dove, Adam Beach, and Nathaniel Arcan, among others, the movie mostly follows the plotline of the novel. Mostly, but not entirely. The movie makes clear that one character, Tabitha, for example, is no longer alive. That's one distinct difference. There's another one related to the resolution and the status of Jimmy. But I don't want to spoil either the novel or the film, which might almost seem to adopt completely disparate views. The ending of the novel, Monkey Beach, is, in fact, hotly debated in my classes. What does it mean? How do we read it? It's less ambiguous in the film, but I don't think it mitigates different interpretive possibilities about the novel's resolution. So... What has happened to Jimmy? Oh, I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to read the novel or watch the film to find out. And that's it for today's episode of Getting Lit with Linda. Please don't hesitate to reach out at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com if you have recommendations or comments. And please don't forget to rate us on whatever platform it is you use to listen to this podcast. Thanks for tuning in, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.